Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. I get to uh, read to you today from selected verses from John 9. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees, who asked him how he had received his sight, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say that was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how can he see now, or who has opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who had acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. This was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. This is God's word. Good morning, church. Well, if you're just joining us or you've been tracking the last few weeks, we're in a series called Under the Influence. Now, as I use that language, what comes to mind right away? Alcohol, right? We use that terminology, actually, to refer to... um, times and places and spaces where substances can, can influence us and influence our behavior in ways that we hadn't planned or ways that we didn't want to but ended up doing. And the connotation, of course, and the reality is that when we are under the influence of those kinds of things, we do things we often shouldn't do. We do things maybe we regret. We do things to hurt ourselves and to hurt other people. And that's why there's a, there's a few things you're not allowed to do when you're under the influence. But even if you're not driving or operating heavy machinery after drinking cough syrup or whatever it is they say you're not supposed to do, um, we all know there's times, in, like if, if you've ever been in that place where you've been under the influence of drugs or alcohol or other stuff, that you know it actually is a destructive thing, even if you're not driving, even if you're not, um, you know, put in a dangerous place. And uh, it made me think, actually, of a friend of mine who, uh, in university, he would call me every Sunday morning and say, Vijay, tell me everything. In other words, tell me everything I did last night, because you were with me and I don't remember it. No joke. One time he said, where are my pants? And, it, and this was like his life, and he would, he would kind of ask me to recount to him everything that happened while he was under the influence because he didn't remember. And many times he was like, I said that? Really? Like, oh my gosh. And if you've ever been in that place, uh, you know that kind of feeling of regret. But even if you've never been or done anything under the influence of alcohol or drugs, the whole purpose of this series is to help us realize there's lots of ways where you and I operate out of the influence of things that lead to destructive behaviors and reactions and responses in our lives. 
what we've said, actually, we use this, ice, this iceberg analogy to say that the truth is that what is seen and who we are and what's visible to other people is really actually 10% of our life and that most of what operates within us and that influences our behaviors, because we've all had times where we're like, man, I can't believe I said that or I can't believe I did that or I can't believe, you know, how could they act like that where we, we don't see what's going on below the surface, but something below the surface was coming out visibly. And we've talked about, actually, we've, we've kind of gone on a journey the last few weeks to say there's several things that operate below the surface of our lives that end up coming out in ways that we can't control, and maybe we can observe this in our own lives or in our relationships, that actually most visible, right, in our relationships with other people, where what is influencing us below the surface comes out and is creating chaos of some kind or another. Every one of us has had that experience before, whether towards us or from us, or usually it's both ways in some shape or form. And we said, okay, Actually, we need to realize there, there is such a thing as an iceberg, that there is stuff below the surface, because one of the things we pointed out was that even church or religious circles can become another environment where we're simply managing the 10%. And, and often people, I've talked to people who don't come to church, and one of the reasons they don't come to church, sometimes they'll say, well, I don't really have my life together. And I'm like, oh, no, that's, that's, that's what, like, you just come to church to admit that, right? Like, you don't get your life together and then come to church. But it's because this belief, or I've heard other people say, well, I'm the only one going through this, or I'm the only messed up one. <laughs> it's this belief that like everybody else seems to have it together, and, and that's the 10%, because that's what I see. Meanwhile, I'm sort of a turmoil of mess, or what's going on in my life, or the decisions I've made. If people only knew, then they wouldn't, because we've come to believe, and maybe this was talked to you in your home. We sometimes even have different clothes that we wear on Sundays, because we're presenting something different than normal life on that day and that we're supposed to act a certain way, and so church can just become another environment or religious environment, so we're just managing the 10% looks good. And so we've said, no, no, if we're actually going to be honest, authentic seekers of God who is reality, not just 10%, but is everything, then we need to actually understand what's operating below the surface. There is such a thing as our inner lives that comes out in many ways. That we've talked about actually beginning to know ourselves, to know God, we have to know ourselves, we have to know what's going in our emotional life, that we actually have emotions. And I said to you, if you say you're someone, I'm not really an emotional type, it just means you're immature, you just don't understand your emotions, right? Because all of us actually need to grow up to understand, I'm operating out of what I feel, whether I'm conscious of it or not. And then we did this thing that was really scary for everyone where we, we talked about going back to go forward. And many of you, if you were in home groups, you did this thing called a genogram where you actually mapped out your family tree. And what you were mapping out was just not who was born when and who married to who, but what are the patterns and influences that have been happening in your family that are unconsciously reproducing themselves in your life? You don't have to put up your hand, but that was scary, right, for many of us. And, and many of us, some of you putting up your hand, this is like, you're good. This is, you're not letting the below the surface. It's true, right? And I've had people say to me, oh my gosh, like, that was a hard thing, or that's actually messed me up. Because I'm, I'm a bit, I'm a bit dis, in despair now because I've looked back and now I'm seeing, man, like there's patterns in my life. I thought I had, I moved away from home, but home's still with me. You know, as Mark said, you know, we can, we can say like Jesus may be in our heart, but grandpa's still in our bones, right? Like we're still being influenced by that family stuff that's going on. Every one of us is. And then we talked about how sometimes that brings us to the place in our Christian life where we are at a wall, where we say, I don't know how to get through this, around this, past this. I am totally stuck. Now, you may be asking yourself, why are we even doing this? Like, because this is, maybe this is creating more problems in you. Maybe this is stirring stuff up and church is becoming that place where like, you know, this is where the disturbed get comfort and not where the comfortable get disturbed. Why are we doing this? Why are we coming here? This is bringing up all this stuff. Here's why. 
the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5.18 on the matter of being under the influence. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. He's saying don't be filled with and influenced by things that actually lead to destruction, one of which an obvious one is wine, but if we can take it to this thing and say, no, actually, people who follow Jesus are meant not to be influenced by things that lead to destructive behavior, but to be filled, or we could say drunk with, the Holy Spirit. And why would Paul say that? The answer to that question is the answer to why we would even do all this digging in our lives. Because elsewhere in Scripture, the Apostle Paul says that the fruit or the outcome of a life that is influenced by the Holy Spirit is love. That if you are increasingly filled with the Holy Spirit, what will come out and what is visible to other people and what will be moving on beneath the surface is love. And I don't know about you, but I want that. I want my relationships in my life. I want to be as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a brother in Christ to all of you. I want to have my life increasingly marked by love. I want to be filled. I want to be under the influence of the spirit of love. That's what I want. And so that's why we're doing this. Because if that starts to happen, if everybody in the world who said they were a Christian, apparently over 2 billion people, claim to follow Jesus, if every one of us was actually increasingly influenced by the spirit that produces the fruit of love, the world would be a different place. That's what I want. That's why we're doing this. When Jesus came, you know, with God, God with skin on, in a sense, coming to the world, um, it's no surprise, actually, that if we were to say, what's the thing that marked his life increasingly? It was, it was interactions and relationships of love in almost every interaction he did. And it wasn't just like he was going around hugging people. Everything he was saying was for the purpose of helping people to see a reality of God's kingdom that was coming. And I wanna, the passage that uh, Dave read for us this morning, maybe you've heard it before, maybe it's the first time you heard it before. It's actually a very insightful conversation about this whole matter of being under the influence of the spirit of love. Um, the, the passage itself, I want to read just the, just the beginning of it for you again. In John chapter 9, you can get that in your Bibles. If you have your phones, you can get that out. If you don't have the Bible app on your phone, people, there's like 180 million people in the world who have it. You are late to the party. Just get it. Okay, you can have the Bible with you everywhere you go. It can be read to you in British accents, which always makes it sound more true uh, or more authoritative. Like, just get it. Um, but if, uh, I'm going to read it for you, just, the, just verses 1 to 7, John chapter 9. As he went along, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, they asked him this because the Jewish people had this kind of belief, it was a little bit like karma, you know, where if, you, if there was something wrong with you physically, that some, either you or somebody in your past or your family had done something wrong, so you were being punished for what you did. So that's why they asked him that. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus just kind of busted apart. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, isn't that awesome? I'm the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. The word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. I just think about this for a minute. 
right? What, what would have happened to this man? It says he was blind from birth. Now, we don't know why they knew that. Maybe it was because he was, we know later he was someone who was seen regularly begging. So maybe people knew his story, or maybe he had some kind of facial disfigurement that made it clear that he, he had been blind from birth. So this man had never seen a sunrise, never seen his parents, never seen the food that he ate. He never saw, you know, near the Sea of Galilee what it was like for the water and the, the greenery around it, the wildlife within it, around it, the place that he lived. Never seen a desert, never seen a mountain. Never seen the people who talked to him, their facial expressions, their body language. And suddenly, you know, Jesus opens his eyes and his whole life, in a sense, comes alive. For this man, it wasn't just his sight, although as incredible as it is, as incredibly as that would have transformed his life in that moment. As I said to you, people in those days thought that people who were sick were cursed by God, and therefore they were marginalized to society. It was a society where you had to make money with your hands, whether you were a fisherman or a farmer or a carpenter or whatever. Um, and so if you were blind or lame in particular from birth, which is why many of the healings of Jesus, see addressing people who have been this way, you, you not only could not work, so you were sent out of your family to beg because you were kind of a problem for your family because you're supposed to make money for your family as a child, and you, that's, you were the inheritance of your parents. But also because religiously you probably had messed up somewhere along the line, that's why God had cursed you. So you were pushed to the margins of, of society, of religion, of life, of family, uh, of the socioeconomic order. And so in every way, this man would have been, in a sense, been a nuisance to everybody and dead to the world. And so when Jesus restores his sight, he not only helps him see the world, he changes his life. He, in a sense, restores his ability to become a human again in every way possible. So this is an incredible miracle. And yet, the more stunning thing is not that this guy was healed, but how the people around him reacted. And we know, actually, this is John's point for writing the story, because the story about the man being healed is only seven verses. The whole rest of the chapter, and it actually goes on for quite a long time, is about the conversations around this whole thing. John was trying to make a point that Jesus was making a point about this miracle. And the truth is, the blind person in the story was not the one that was healed, but everyone else who was around him. All of the people around him were actually blind to love. You look at the disciples. They're walking by with Jesus. And what's crazy about the disciples is, they had already seen Jesus heal a man who had been lame from birth. They had seen him just in the previous chapter feed to, uh, like nearly 8,000 men, women, and children from five loaves and two fish. You'd think if they were starting to get the feel of Jesus, they would have said, Jesus, here's this blind man. Can you heal him too? Instead, he's a prop in their religious conversation. He's just a, he's an object lesson. They're walking by this guy who's blind, completely on the outcast and margins of society. Hey, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Don't seem to be interested in him getting healed. He's just there. And so they were, because Jesus was their rabbi and they were the, his disciples, so they wanted to learn. They were basically selfish learners, totally blind to love. They were like, oh yeah, no, let's, let's just talk about, uh, let's talk about theology, Jesus. Let's talk about who sinned, this person or his parents, sitting on the side of the road. Never occurred to them to say, maybe Jesus wants to heal him. And Jesus is actually, neither him nor his parents, I'm actually about to bring the light of the world into this man's life. But his disciples were totally blind to it. They were walking with Jesus. They didn't get the point of what he was doing. There was no love within him. They were kind of selfish learners. And you know what? I've, I can be honest. I've been like this before, and I've heard people say this. So people say, well, I'm not going to go to that church anymore because I don't really feel fed there. 
Like, I'm not really learning. Or you know what? They just move from Bible study to Bible study to this and that to try to learn more when all the while God is saying, there are people around you that I have actually sent you to love, and that's the whole point of this thing. The disciples are like, hey, Jesus, who sinned? This one or his parents? And Jesus is like, neither. I actually want to do this to display the works of God and to bring the light of the world. And while the light of the world is here, we must do the works of God. They were totally blind to love because they were basically just interested in themselves. They just wanted to inquire more knowledge. They wanted to learn more from Jesus, keep Jesus to themselves, not interested in the fact that he was already beginning to show them why I came into the world. The beginning of his ministry, he said, I've come that the blind might see, that the, that the, uh, the poor might have good news, that those who are in darkness and uh, in prison and those the, the, who are oppressed might be set free. And they just didn't get it. They were totally blind to what Jesus wanted to do through him, through them. What about the Pharisees? I love this part. It says that the day on which Jesus made the mud and did the miracle was the Sabbath. And if you read the account, right, the, the Pharisees are very upset and they call Jesus a sinner because he had done this on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath holy, was one of the Ten Commandments that Israel was given and they were supposed to do it. But like all people do when it comes to religion, it's like, yeah, okay, but tell me how. Like, how much can I get away with? So what can I, can't do? And so the Pharisees were a group of people, in a sense, who were, um, they were the ones who preserved the religious order. They were made sure everybody, you know, they weren't really bad guys in, in that cell. It's like they're trying to, people are like, well, what do you mean? Whole keep the Sabbath holy. How, what, what does that work, right? That's, we, always, we always want, like, just tell me what to do, right? That's the heart of religion. Just tell me what to do, and I'll follow it, and then you'll bless me. So they had 39 other laws that if you kept or didn't, didn't break, you were keeping the Sabbath. So, so out of one, God gives them one, they make 39 more, right? This is the heart of religion. So people can say, oh, God's a rule follower. It's like, no, people are. We just want to do that. We want to control each other and ourselves. 39 other laws. Do you know what one of them was? You cannot make clay or mud on the Sabbath. Of the hundred ways that Jesus could have healed this guy, why did he make mud? And then make the guy walk across wherever he was going to the pool of Siloam, past all these people with mud on his eyes, right? Come all the way back passing a whole bunch of people on the way, and every time he tells a story, what happened? Well, he made mud, and he put mud on my eyes. You were also weren't supposed to walk for certain distances. Previously, he had healed a paralytic and told him to get up his mat and carry it. The guy didn't need the mat anymore. One of the things you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath was carry your mat. Jesus was digging under the ribs of the religious leaders all the time, saying, your religion has blinded you to love. All they were interested in, this man has had his whole life restored in front of their eyes, and all they're interested in is Jesus broke the Sabbath. Tell us, declare, he's a sinner, isn't he? And it's funny, actually, if you read the account, they're like, make the guy tell the story. And he's like, I've already told you. He's like, why do you want me to tell you again? Do you want to become his disciples? And they're like, shut up. And it's like, you know, in grade four, we're like, oh, you love her, don't you? You want to marry her? And they're like, no, I don't. And like, that's what was happening in this thing. He's like, why do you keep asking me? I've told you. He made my, put it on my eyes. And they're like, tell the truth before God. This man is a sinner, isn't he? And he's just like, I don't know. All I know is I was blind and now I see. He says, I don't know about all your rules and what you did. All I know is I was blind and I see. They did not care. Why? Because they were so afraid of losing control. This was what was operating below the surface. See, what operating below the surface of the disciples' lives was just selfishness and wanting to learn and wanting to keep Jesus for themselves and keep on becoming wiser and becoming more important people because they were hanging around with someone important. 
What was under the surface for the Pharisees was a, a, a judgmental attitude towards others and a fear of losing control because they were the ones who were the authority and Jesus kept bucking the system and kept doing things that was totally undermining their law. And that's why they were saying, how could this guy be a, a good man and break the law? And the, the blind guy who has no education, didn't grow up in the synagogue, didn't know anything, he's like, isn't that funny? You're calling him a sinner, but we know God doesn't listen to sinners. And this man does things that no one's ever done before, and you're calling him a sinner. And that's when they say, just get out of the synagogue. They refused to see love and truth right in front of their eyes. Why? Because they were too afraid of losing the control that they had so carefully constructed for themselves. And Jesus is coming and trying to undermine it all the time, trying to say to them, listen, you're missing the point. Your religion, your fear of losing your control, your judgmental attitudes are holding you back from loving other people. And isn't that true? Right? Isn't that what often keeps us from loving other people? We want to maintain our sense of decorum. We want to be in control. We're quick to judge other people far, far before we are to show them mercy. They were not interested in that this man's life had been totally changed. In the end, they judged him and kicked him out of the synagogue. They didn't actually want him to be a worshiper of God, which is what they said they were doing was, was to, to ensure that people would be true worshipers of God. And in the moment, they had a chance to bring a man who could not have even come to the temple because he was blind and because he would have been cursed and seen as sort of rejected by God. And Jesus heals him. And now their opportunity as the religious leaders are to bring him closer to God. Instead, they end up kicking him out because they had so judged him in their heart. How many times have we made judgments about other people, about their conditions? We've seen the 10% of their lives. We've seen that they look blind. They must have done this or the problems that they're having. Well, that's the bed they made and they're lying in it. And that's our attitude towards them. And Jesus is saying, do you not realize that all of this faithful religion that you're trying to observe is to get you to actually love? And how often does religion and, and, our, and our love of God lead us more to just judge other people than actually see the people right in front of our eyes that Jesus is trying to heal and sends us to, right? That's the, one of the underlying hidden themes in this thing, right? It says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash that you might be seen. It's a sent. This is the word means sent. That you are sent out into the world around. And then what about the parents? Maybe the parents is, is, the, is the saddest response of all the groups. I mean, they didn't want anything to stick to them, right? You'd think in this moment, not only is the son that they had been given, and, and, and there's those days the son, like, and if, if you were given a son, that means, okay, he could take over the family business. And so he was your future inheritance. There were no RSPs then. This was your RSP. It was your child. And so not only in him being blind would that have brought sort of, sort of negative looks and, and um you know, bad reputation on their family, but now they would have no way of having a future inheritance because their son was blind. And Jesus restores it all at once. They couldn't thank Jesus. They couldn't even celebrate and hug their son. Why? Because they were so afraid of what other people thought. It says the Pharisees said that anyone who proclaims Jesus as the Messiah is going to be kicked out of the synagogue. And so in the moment they had to express their incredible gratitude to Jesus and love for their son who now has been fully restored to them, all they say is, uh, yep, that's our son, and yep, he was born blind. As for how he sees now, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age. Isn't that so bizarre? Why they were so afraid of what other people thought. 
They were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue because being kicked out of the synagogue would not just be that you're sort of religious outcast, you're a social outcast because the synagogue was sort of the center of life in those towns. And so for them, in the moment, what was operating out of them, the ability to love their son well and to love Jesus and to see Jesus? No, instead they were totally blind to that because they were so afraid and what was operating out of their lives was the fear of what other people will think and do and say. And how often does that keep us from loving well? That we're afraid of what other people will say. We're afraid that if we put ourselves out there that someone will reject it. And so we don't try. We're fear if we start to move and live and operate with these kinds of people, well, what will other people think? We're afraid to take steps of faith because of what our parents will think or what our family will think. We're afraid to actually move more towards and take risks to love other people because, well, what will happen to me? And so what was operating under the surface of their lives that was blinding them to love was a fear of what other people think. And this is why the truth is, and, and, and Jesus actually goes on to explain, he says, you know, the truth is those who think they see are the ones who are actually blind, and the ones who get to see are the ones who acknowledge they're blind. Jesus uses this story as, as a metaphor, as an illustration of a different kind of blindness, the blindness that all three of these groups had. They were blind to two things. They couldn't see Jesus right in front of them. And you know, the end of the story is amazing, right? This, this poor guy is kind of bouncing around. He doesn't, know, he doesn't even know who healed him. He knows, he knows his name was Jesus, but he didn't see Jesus. Jesus spit, put mud on his eyes, sent him to the pool. He comes back seeing, and now everyone's like grabbing him, saying, what happened to you? Are you the guy? We don't know. This is not the guy. They're arguing. It couldn't have been. And they're like, who healed you? He's like, I don't know. He hasn't seen him yet. At the end of the passage, you'll find he kind of comes to Jesus finally. First, he says he must be a prophet. Then when he comes to Jesus, he realizes he's Lord and Messiah, and the story ends, in a sense, with him at the feet of Jesus, worshiping him. He was the one who finally saw Jesus. The rest of them, who should have seen it long before, who had sight, who were religious leaders or disciples who were walking with Jesus for so long, was missing all along who he was right in front of the kind of person he was and what he wanted to do in the world into which he had been sent. And this one man realizes and does the one thing that everybody else should have been done, which was falling at the feet of Jesus and worshiping. And Jesus says, be careful lest you think you see. It's the ones who realize they don't, who are able to. They were blind to Jesus, and then therefore they were blind to the ones around them that Jesus had sent them to love. This is the, the crisis of faith we have, friends. It's possible for us to be in religious circles and read the right things and do the right things and go to Bible studies and go to church and pray and all this stuff, and all the while in a sense, be blind to the things that God is trying to do around us and the people that he has sent us to. I was hugely convicted about this in my own life, just reading this week and praying through it. I was saying, BJ, what is the point of this? The point of this is that you might love. The point of this is that you might see me more, worship me more, and as a result, have your eyes open to the things and the people and the places that I am doing around you. I believe in a sense why so many of us, myself included, get disoriented at a time when all of this stuff has happened politically, right, recently. 
it is so disorienting to us in part because we have lost perspective on what our mission is in the world. It does not matter who is on the throne of any kingdom or political party. Our mission as sent people in the world is to see Jesus and to see the ones around us that he has sent us to. It never changes. Amen? This is the reorienting. This is the spiritual blindness in a sense that we are continually needing to be cured of by Jesus. See, what happens when, and this is why seeing Jesus, you know, because it's possible to look at this and look at the ministry of Jesus and say, yeah, we're supposed to go and do good things in the world, right? And we've just sent a team over to West Africa. who has been waiting for two and a half years since Ebola came through and cut their trip, uh, you know, off the day, before, the day they were leaving. They finally got to go and we're sending people in. People might say, oh yeah, this is good. We sh- this is what we should be doing. We should be doing good things in the world. Why is it essential to see Jesus first? Because when I see Jesus, what I see is a picture of humility that totally is an indictment on my pride and the way that I look at the world. What I see when I see Jesus is one who used, as one person said, the definition of humility is using your power in the service of others. I see Jesus, the one person that needed to surrender to no one, made himself nothing to serve everyone. When I see Jesus, I see a humility that transforms the world that now the cross is the enduring symbol of humility, that it is to give yourself away, Jesus says, no greater love than this. That's why I need to see Jesus. But I also need to see Jesus that he is on the throne, so I don't have to be afraid, and I don't need to control, and I am not the king of any world. Therefore, I can surrender the things that I'm so fearfully clutching to, needing to control when things feel out of control, or when my relationships feel out of control, or when my financial life feels out of control. I need to see Jesus again on the throne saying, I've got this. You can let go. It releases me from a fear of control that would keep me from actually paying attention to the people around me. When I see Jesus, my eyes get taken off myself. I'm now not selfishly just trying to acquire stuff anymore. I'm at the feet of the one who has saved me and healed me and opens my eyes again and again. And it releases me to say, God, why have you sent me into this world? I see Jesus remember his love for me and say, if that's what you think about me, I don't need to worry what anybody else thinks of me. Right? When I see Jesus, I can release the need to have approval and love and be afraid of what if this person rejects me or what if this person says this. I don't need to operate under the influence of the fear of other people when I see Jesus. This is why I must see him first. And when I do, he begins to open my eyes and say, this person, this person, this person, this situation. I have actually sent you into the family that you're so frustrated with. I have sent you into the workplace that is driving you crazy. I have sent you to the boss that you are praying would leave. (laughs) Stop praying about that. (laughs) Open your eyes. This is the places and spaces into which I have sent you. Don't miss this. This is about worshiping me and letting me open your eyes to see who I've sent you to. You are a sent people. See, the church is the family of God, the place where we actually begin to learn this stuff, where we can begin to practice and to learn how to love each other. And I say practice and learn because it does not happen automatically. And many of us are frustrated with churches or past churches or this church because how come we don't love well? And you're right, like we should love well because if this is who our Savior is, but he has sent us into the church to actually learn to love. 
I believe he called me into pastoral ministry, if nothing else, just to teach me how to love. And I realize I'm actually not that good at it. I'm selfish. I need to grow. I need to learn. I need to have my eyes open. The church is this place where we can begin to practice and say, okay, we don't need to control each other. We don't need to be afraid of each other. We don't need to just be sort of selfish consumers of more biblical stuff. We need to love each other. We need to see Jesus more and see each other better. That's the eyes that need to be open. And so what I want to bless you with is, is these words, to have a courageous conversation. And the conversation goes like this. Help me see. Help me see. It's a conversation with Jesus about him. Jesus, help me see you more. Help me see how magnificent and glorious and powerful and selfless you are. But help me see me. Help me see what's operating below the surface of my life that's blocking me from actually being able to love the people well that you've put in my life. And then we have to have this conversation with each other because we're so quick to judge each other. We're so quick to respond to each other based on the 10% that we see, whether it's someone we've been married to forever or someone we've just met or the person that we are serving in the lineup at Tim Hortons or who's serving us. We react to the 10%. Jesus, help me see what's going on in their lives. Maybe in a relationship where you've been butting heads, you need to actually sit down and have this conversation. Help me see. I want to see you more. I want to understand you more. I've been responding in negative ways. Like, help me understand you more. Help me see you. That's the courageous conversation. I say courageous because it's risky to do that, right? You might say, well, why? Why would we do that? <laughs> this is hard stuff. Because a conversation can change the world. And I want to read you about one of those. Read you a story about one of those conversations. Nikki Cruz was only three and a half years old when, in his own words, his heart turned to stone. As one of 18 children born to witchcraft practicing parents from Puerto Rico, bloodshed and mayhem were a common occurrence in his life. He suffered severe physical and mental abuse at their hands, and at one time he was declared the son of Satan by his mom while she was in a spiritual trance. When he was 15, Nikki's father sent him to visit an older brother in New York. Nikki didn't stay with his brother long. Instead, full of anger and rage, he chose to make it on his own. Tough but lonely, by age 16, he became a member of the notorious Brooklyn street gang known as the Mau Maus. Within six months, he became their president. Cruz fearlessly ruled the streets, dreaded by rivals and police. Lost in the cycle of drugs, alcohol, and brutal violence, his life took a tragic turn for the worse after a friend and fellow gang member was horribly stabbed and beaten, and he died in Nikki's arms. As Cruz's reputation grew, so did his haunting nightmares. Arrested countless times, a court-ordered psychiatrist pronounced Nikki's fate as headed to prison, the electric chair, and hell. No authority figure could reach Cruz until he met a skinny street preacher named David Wilkerson. Wilkerson would walk right into these gang areas, wanting to befriend gang members, holding Bible studies, talking to them about Jesus while they were high on heroin. He disarmed Nikki showing him something he'd never known before, relentless love. His interest in this young, broken, hardened gang leader was persistent, but Nikki didn't want any of it. Nikki beat him up, spit on him, and eventually one day when David had come to talk to him again, he grabbed him by the shirt and he pulled out a knife that he had used to kill other people and he threatened to cut him up and take his life. And he was serious. But what Wilkinson said that day changed his life. You could cut me into a thousand pieces and lay them out in the street and every piece would love you still. 
Wilkerson's relentless demonstration of the love of Jesus melted the thick walls of his heart, and Nikki's eyes were open, and he saw Jesus through the love of a Jesus follower. Nikki, to this day, has spoken to over 45 million people about his story, about new life in Jesus. It was a conversation that changed the world. Some of you, I'm convinced, just need to see Jesus for the first time. Maybe you've been to church, maybe you've read the Bible, maybe you've been in stuff and you've kind of figured out how the Christian religion works. But if you're honest, you've never seen Jesus. Some of us just need to see him again. And we've lost sight of him. I know in my own life, when I see a hardness of heart, when I see a lack of love, it is first and foremost an indication that I have lost sight of Jesus. That I have not seen him again. I have not experienced his love. I have not reflected on him and run to him and turn to him. And so I'm blind again. So I ask Jesus, open my eyes. So what I want to do is I want to lead us in a prayer. And for some of you, I want to lead you in a prayer. If this is the first time that you've ever actually said, Jesus, I want to see you. Realize like all this other stuff that you're doing, it's not actually helping you love people. And first and foremost, Jesus has been sent to you to open your eyes, that you'd see him. And then I want to pray for the, everyone else who maybe said, yeah, I know I have, but I'm, I'm losing sight, or I just want more. I don't know, I just want more, right? Don't you want more? You want more to be more under the influence of the Spirit of Christ. So we need our eyes open. So I'm just going to ask you all to bow. And if this is the first time you've ever prayed this prayer, you don't need to pray it out loud, but you just pray it with me in your heart. And maybe if this is the hundredth time you've prayed it, you can pray it again too. Jesus, open my eyes to see you. I want to know your forgiveness in my life. I want to receive the love you have for me. I want you to lead my life and show me how to love others. Jesus, for all of us in this room, I pray that you would free us from selfishness that just wants to acquire more knowledge and acquire more importance and status, however we define that in our lives. And we are really blind to those around us that you have sent us to open our eyes. Jesus, we want to be free of a judgmental pride that is self-satisfied with what we have done or who we are or what we know. Open our eyes to see the people that you have sent us to. Jesus, we want to be free of the fear of others. Open our eyes. We need to see you. And we need to see the world in which, into which you have sent us. For those of us that have prayed that the first time, Lord, and those of us that are praying it again and again, we just ask you to never stop. Come to us. See us like you saw that man on the side of the road. Notice us, God. We are under the influence of so many other things, and you have come as the light of the world to, to help us be increasingly under the influence of the Spirit. The Spirit, the fruit of being, is love. And so we ask all of this in your name, Jesus, the light of the world. Amen. And invite the worship team to just come and lead us in response. The Spirit has been speaking to you this morning. If that's the first time you've prayed that prayer or 
feel like there's been something going on that you needed to pray it and again by all means come and talk to one of us after on staff or one of the people up front we'd love to pray with you after Jesus we ask your blessing on this church this morning we just open our hands to you I want to invite you to receive this blessing this morning. That Jesus is the one who opens your eyes. And so he is the one that you need to turn to. So I just want to bless you with a voice to call out to him. A voice that is able to say, Jesus, can you see me? Can you see my situation? Can you open my eyes? A voice that is able to cry out for more. And to know that this is why he was sent into the world, is to see you and to open your eyes. Would you receive that?